Hello, everybody, and welcome to our chest webinar on COVID-19 resurgence. What's different this time? I'm Alice Gallo, and I'm going to be your moderator and host today. And we have four amazing specialists from all over the world. They're going to they're going to talk to us about um, this new uh, wave of COVID-19. And we're going to talk about if this is a new disease, if it's the same, uh, if it's more of the same. And we're going to try to to also give you some tips on how to keep treating this disease that looks like it's not going anywhere. So I'm going to ask our panelists to introduce themselves, and I'm going to go by what by the order I see in my screen. So no particular order here. So um, Thomas, would you mind going first? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me today. Uh, my name's Tom Valley. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Michigan in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care. Uh, my clinical time is spent mostly in our intensive care unit here at the university, as well as at our local uh, veterans hospital. Uh, my research uh, focuses on ICU admission decision-making. How do we decide which patients go to the ICU and which ones don't? Uh, as well as trying to improve the organization of intensive care units, particularly among rural hospitals. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, go ahead. And then I guess you wanted... Uh, to know how things are going for us right now. So, um, you know, we had a surge that started probably in uh, early April, um, which was, I've lost track, but I wanna say maybe our third or fourth surge. Um, and it was, it was unique, I think, to the US in that it was a surge in the state of Michigan, but other places around the US didn't necessarily experience that same surge. I'd say overall, uh, at this point, we've, plat we've clearly plateaued and seem like things are improving. Thank you for being here with us today. Uh, the next person I have on my, screen is, on my screen is Sai. Would you mind going next? Hi there. I'm uh, Sai Praveen Harnath. I'm a pulmonary critical care doctor. I'm in Hyderabad, India, in the middle of India. Uh, it's evening. I'm at, I think, day four, hour 14 of my work day at this point. But uh, the surge is here right now. And I think one of the reasons why the surge makes a lot of sense and makes a lot of sense to actually talk about it is because people are being affected by it and uh, preparing for it would, would really help. Uh, I do critical care uh, and a lot of remote critical care. I do tele-ICU for India and the United States. I'm trained in the US to go back to India a while ago. I also am on the uh, CHEST leadership, and so I'm on the Board of Regents, and also on the uh, chair of the Executive Committee of the Council of Global Governors. So in that role, I've kind of been able to talk to my colleagues around the world and really find out what they're going through. And the amazing thing is that it's the same thing everywhere. And there's gonna be a lot of learning that can happen, which in a way, I mean, it's a very sad situation, but I think healthcare is gonna get better after this pandemic because people are really much more aware of science and they know what's happening. Uh, in India right now, we are uh, you know, seeing about uh, 0.35 million cases a day. And the cumulative number of those has added up to over 20 million so far. Fortunately, the number of vaccinations is also running you know, pretty good. It's over 175 million people have been vaccinated. So from that standpoint, uh, I mean, they're hoping to catch up, but it's a big country. So from that standpoint, there's a lot that's happening. So uh, glad to be here and thank you for the webinar and really looking forward to learning from my colleagues from the other places. Thank you so much for being with us today and thank you for staying an extra hour for, for this. We really appreciate your expertise. Next person I have on my screen here is Stefano. Would you mind going next? Good afternoon, Alice, and uh, thank you for having me here in this webinar. Uh, and uh, my name is uh, Stefano Liberti. I'm a pulmonary physician in Milan. I'm a professor of respiratory medicine, and uh, I'm directing a COVID-19 high dependency unit here in Milan since March 2020. And uh, the situation is uh, getting better uh, since 10, 15 days uh, here in Milan. And in Italy, I would say uh, we, our third wave is going a little bit down. And uh, because of vaccination and um, we are now experiencing uh, um, very, very few, uh, very few cases uh, from the emergency room. While we have several issues with people uh, winning from the ICU, especially for uh, complications that uh, 
we didn't we didn't see uh, to be honest uh, during the first wave and uh, my clinical expertise is in is on uh, non-invasive ventilation and CPAP treatment of COVID-19 here in uh, in our high dependency unit and uh, I'm really happy to be with you this afternoon and uh, I'm happy to to learn from from you all thank you thank you so much for being with us and last but not least, not least, my good friend Marina, would you mind going next? Yes, sure. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm from Brazil, uh, Porto Alegre. It's a south city in Brazil. I'm attending physician in a university hospital. Right now, we have a uh, hundred ICU beds dedicated to to COVID patients, and plus thirty beds for other patients. We had our worst wave uh, in March this year. It was the first time that uh, here in South Brazil, we didn't have enough ICU beds. So it was really difficult. Things are better now, but still have a lot of cases. We still have ICU almost plenty, but hopefully with a little room for other patients to come. I'm really ha happy to be here and it's an honor. So, the, the rest of the webinar, we're going to just have a conversation about themes that you already brought up so far. And please feel free to speak up and, and share your expertise, your knowledge um, at any time. But I, I would like to start with, with a question, especially for, let's start with Sai today, uh, with this first question. You mentioned that vaccines are also um, um, coming up and people are getting more vaccinated. In this new wave, are you seeing people who were already vaccinated getting sick? And, that, and then after Sai responds, then whoever, whoever wants to go next, just please go ahead. Sure. sure. So I think, you know, one of the things of vaccination has been vaccine hesitancy. And, you know, I'm sure you know that the WHO in 2019 said that one of the top 10 global health challenges was vaccine hesitancy. And that's happened. I mean, there have been people who didn't take the vaccine, but then once the surge started happening, people were all rushing for it. But in general, it's been very unusual to see patients who are vaccinated getting infected, but there have been people who had the first shot who got infected sometime later. But universally, there's been probably a, literally a handful of cases who got very sick, but nobody got very sick who got vaccinated. So far, uh, we have not seen anyone who got all the shots get very sick. Uh, we have had, I think, one or two in the ICU, but pretty much they've all made it out. Uh, it's very rare to get very sick after the second complete dose of the vaccine is completed. That's good. Vaccines work. How about, how about others? How about you, Stefano? Have you seen anyone like after fully vaccinated coming sick to your ICU? Yeah, so um, let, me, let, me, uh, let me tell you that uh, the, the vaccination strategy here in Italy uh, um, has been successful since uh, very few weeks. Uh, so I, I can tell you that uh, the uh, most severe cases of people uh, uh, who got the vaccine were uh, those uh, who have been hospitalized uh, very few days after the first dose. Um, to be honest, uh, we did not record any severe, very severe disease in people uh, who underwent the second vaccination, the second doses, uh, the second dose. And, uh, and uh, I, regardless the kind of vaccination they got. Uh, so these are of course some preliminary data because, uh, because the exact uh, epidemiological data we have in Italy so far. So this is more a gut feeling or a Milan experience. Uh, but makes sense to me from a pathophysiological point of view. Uh, and this is good. This is good for us. Absolutely. Mom and Marie, Marina, did you guys have any, any experience after vaccine that you saw patients um, coming in? Well, we did have one patient that had just got his second, child, uh, second shot. Uh, and he was admitted in the intensive care and needed uh, invasive mechanical ventilation. Uh, but he's doing better now, so hopefully he will be okay. 
um, what we saw is that in the first wave, we had a lot of healthcare professionals getting sick. And healthcare professionals were the, the first ones to get vaccinated. And even though this time around we had the worst wave with a lot of my cases, we didn't have as much uh, healthcare professionals getting sick and no case at all that patient that uh, they got uh, severe. So that was really a good thing. Yeah, I think the, what the other panelists have discussed reflects um, our experiences here in the US as well. It's incredibly rare for someone who's received both doses of the vaccination to have severe disease. I, I, had, I had one patient who received both doses who developed severe disease and died, but that is definitely the exception um, to the rule. And I think that um, overall is reflected in kind of my two areas of practice between um, the, the veterans hospital and the university hospital in terms of perhaps the impact of vaccine hesitancy our veteran um, population uh, has an incredibly high rate of vaccination, like 80, 80 plus percent locally, compared to our university where the rate of vaccination is much lower. And um, our rates of COVID, even during this most recent surge, were incredibly low within our veterans hospital. You know, I don't think we went above five patients with COVID at our veterans hospital, compared to our university hospital, uh, where we were um, incredibly tight for intensive care unit beds. So um, I think I think the numbers um, really reflect the fact that the vaccine is um, doing an incredible job. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, Tom, since I since I have you like, answered like just this one, so I'm gonna start with you for the next one. Okay, I was hoping to hear from all of you. We're gonna start with Tom, but hear from all of you. Do you think or have you observed that the type of patients are the same this time around? And um, like Stefano brought up, the complications are the, the, same, the same or different? reason why I'm asking is, at least here where I work, uh, we've, we're seeing younger patients, overall younger patients. And, um, and to be honest, the severity of the ARDS that they develop has been a little lower, to be honest with you, than what we had like November, December last year and March, February of last year. So Tom, let's start with you. And then whoever wants to go next, just please speak up. Yeah, I think that um, that also reflects our practice. I think um, the patient population definitely seems to be younger whether that's a reflection of the disease or a, a reflection of who's getting vaccinated, you know, within the state of Michigan. Um, and I think generally in the US, like Marina said, the healthcare workers um, ended up getting vaccinated first. And then after that, it was the older population. Um, and so uh, is this a reflection of um, kind of variants of COVID or is this just a reflection of who's been vaccinated and who hasn't been vaccinated? But certainly we're seeing younger people than in the earlier surges. Um, in terms of uh, the severity of disease, I agree. I think the severity of disease um, seems to be less um, than before. Uh, you know, I've always found it difficult to disentangle how much of it is true severity of illness versus just the organization of ICU care, right? Like that first surge was just absolute chaos for us um, compared to now where we can actually find ICU beds and ventilators and heated high flow mechanisms for patients. So, you know, how much of it is severity of illness and how much of it is um, just we can actually provide the care that we want to give to patients. Um, I, I find that difficult to kind of disentangle. Uh, in terms of complications, um, I can't, you know, I think this is all anecdotal. I can't speak to like major differences in complications. I'm interested to hear what Stefano's um, seen. You know, I, I, anecdotally, I feel like I'm seeing more pneumothoraces more recently, but I don't know if it's just like, me and the patients that we're caring for compared to kind of the original surges. Um, so, but I think overall, it seems like other than the demographics being different and perhaps the severity of illness being different, overall, it feels in terms of care similar. So Alice, if I can add something uh, on complications, I think that uh, I, I agree with uh, Thomas uh, about pneumothorax, and um, I think that uh, that uh, 
also pneumomediastinum uh, is something we, we, we are seeing in our, in our daily clinical practice. And um, we, are, we are now uh, evaluating uh, risk factors for developing pneumothorax and pneumomediastinum, and we are collecting a sort of uh, risk factors uh, on related to mechanical ventilation, but also related to prone positioning for awake, non-intubated patients. Uh, because we have, we have this gut feeling that maybe prone, prone position uh, in a weight patient, non-intubated, might be a risk factors for pneumothorax, especially males, more, more males more than female. But uh, to me, uh, over the past few weeks, the most important complication was fungi infections. Um, also but also, uh, also um, in the blood, not only in, uh, in the lung. And the reason why uh, is because uh, steroids, uh, in comparison to the first wave, have been given in the community much more uh, at the beginning, maybe uh, in the wrong way, uh, to people uh, who uh, were not on acute respiratory failure uh, and people uh, who didn't have the, the need to, to be on steroids. And then when they come to our attention after maybe two weeks of uh, intubations or two weeks of non-invasive ventilation, so this means four weeks of steroids, and uh, maybe fungi uh, are, are killing our patients because, because they are a little bit more immunocompromised uh, than the first wave. So this is, a, this is a big issue for us now. I don't know if this is uh, common in other parts of the world. We have been seeing uh, quite a bit of uh, pneumothoraces and pneumomediastinum, and I'm, I'm not sure why, but it's high pressures or what's actually causing it. But we've had them in non-intubated patients also. So some of my colleagues have seen that. And uh, I think it's really worth maybe what you're doing, Stefano, would be interesting to figure out, is it something mechanical in terms of how we are doing things, or is this a biological or something else different? In terms of the patient mix, you know, it looks like there's a lot of young people, but I know someone was looking at the spectrum. And India, though, it's hard to say because, you know, 65% plus of India is very young. So you just have a lot of young people and most of them are not vaccinated. So is it just a phenomenon related to that? And then it's because of the variant being very transmissible, we just have a large number of people at the same time. So whether that's what's happening and that's why it looks like young people are affected, maybe, maybe so. The other part of it, you know, the, the, the critical care delivered also varies in different locations. So it's possible that some people are getting sicker uh, before they can reach the full tertiary level that they require. And then they're presenting later. And a lot of people are, you know, getting home care for a lot of things. And just as Stefano mentioned, there's a lot of rampant steroid use. Uh, and sometimes patients are doing it on their own. And, and so that's kind of a a dangerous situation and we are seeing a significant, I would say a very large number of fungal infections, especially Mupar, with uh, plenty of ENT surgeons getting their you know, four, five, six cases in a week. So it, it's pretty sad to just see all these young people get that. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, the social media works pretty actively in India and especially in the medical community. So a lot of the groups have been sharing tips you know, how do you prevent it and how do you recognize it early? So that's actually a good thing that's happened. So, so in terms of uh, the population, I think uh, the younger crowd is probably more affected, but it might just be because there's just more of them at this point. Well, we had the same impression in Brazil that we had uh, younger patients, but um, I asked a colleague of mine that take care of our data in, in my hospital. And when we looked at their data, it actually, it had a no, no different from the first wave. Um, one thing that we, we had is that we had more severe patients coming right now, but I guess it's because they came later. Uh, we had patients that waited for a week in the emergency room before they could get a ICU bed. So they, they didn't have the same care in, in the emergency room that they would have in ICU. And I think that's why we saw them uh, sicker than, than the, in the first wave. And about complications, what we are seeing that's really worrisome, it's that we have more infections with uh, 
resistant bacteria. From, uh, so that's really something that's worrying a lot in our hospital. We are doing a lot of uh, a task force for prevention for pneumonia associated ventilation, um, but it still is something that's uh, concerning all of us. So sounds like we are all seeing from, from uh, more of a feeling sounds like younger patients, but we are all seeing complications. And I love the fact that Tom brought something up at the beginning, go back to like a year from now, right? Um, a, a year ago, we were like, yes, CPAP, no CPAP, yes, high flow, no high flow. And, and I feel like now we're like, okay, high flow, pretty safe, CPAP, pretty safe. We have enough PPE in most parts of the world right now. And, and we know, we know, kind of know when to intubate. That's the same as regular hypoxemic respiratory failure. And I, taking that segue, I would like to ask a question that we got from our audience. Um, are you treating, in terms of mechanical ventilation, any differently than you would treat normal ARDS? Are you taking into consideration the um, H and L phenotypes that we have seen um, all over the medical journals uh, since COVID started, or are you doing just regular ARDS, acute hypoxemic respiratory failure management, a year and a half into this? Now, like Tom said, that we know more. And Stefano, maybe you could go first this time. So, Alice, uh, let me tell you. Um... Uh, I don't have an experience in uh, uh, intubated patients with COVID-19. Uh, I work in a, in a high dependence unit, and so I can tell you about non-invasive ventilation. I can tell you about helmet CPAP. So uh, I might start uh, giving a perspective uh, from a non-invasive point of view. So um, we, I think we, at the beginning in March 2020, uh, we didn't know uh, anything about this disease. So we were trying to, uh, to manage these patients as, uh, as we uh, used to do with uh, pneumococcal pneumonia. Uh, so we were using helmet CPAP with uh, 10, 15 centimeters of water as a positive end expiratory pressure. Uh, but uh, soon we realized that this was a completely different disease. Uh, and um, from that point of view, uh, we are uh, individualizing uh, the, uh, the positive and expiratory pressure we are using through the helmet CPAP through a lung recruitability test. We are doing every 48, 72 hours in our patients. So we put the patient on zero PIP and then on 2.5, 5, 7.5, 10, and 12.5 recording blood gas analysis and vitals. And then we are, after this four hours kind of uh, test, we are selecting the right PIP for that patient for that day and for the other two or three days. And then we are doing the same with uh, an additional intervention we are doing, which is prone positioning uh, on helmet CPAP. And we are testing, so we are testing both lung recruitment through the uh, individualized positive end expiratory pressure through helmet CPAP and then, uh, and then the if they are also responders to uh, prone positioning. And uh, we published a couple of data about that and we found that if you are using uh, a gradient as an endpoint uh, of gas exchange to evaluate lung recruitment, actually there are not a lot of patients uh, uh, that are responding to prone positioning. So uh, this is really tricky because puffy ratio is going up but maybe puffy ratio is not the right, uh, the right tool to evaluate gas exchange in, a, in a hypocapnia kind of acute respiratory failure. Uh, so we tend to individualize both treatments, uh, lung recruitment at the beginning for helmet CPAP and then prone positioning. And, and if they don't work, they, 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 they don't work. We, we stop, we do not prone patients uh, because uh, we might harm them, you know. And uh, so this is the best way as uh, we think uh, we can deliver this standard of care. Uh, then um, we, we another, another interesting point, uh, and uh, Alice, I think you, you're gonna touch this, is timing for intubation. And we got some experience about that. Uh, and then uh, 
We also learned to use ifluonazole cannula a lot, uh, more on winning from NIV and CPAP uh, rather than uh, during an upgrade. Uh, but um, this, is a, this is the kind of experience I can bring to the table. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a huge experience in intubated patients. Unfortunately, you just, you just dropped so many pearls. That's amazing. Thank you. And tell, tell us more, and then we'll go back to the, to the previous question to the other panelists. Tell us more how you use high flow to to de-escalate from non-invasive? Like what are the parameters you're using in your, in your non-invasive to say, oh, they're ready for high flow? Yeah, so uh, the, there's, there's no protocol published about weaning from C helmet CPAP or NIV in uh, COVID-19. So uh, what we have learned is, uh, and what we have learned with our respiratory physiotherapists that are key players for all, all of this, you know? is that uh, we start doing uh, one hour, two hours in the morning uh, on iclonazole cannula on CPAP. We look at the puffy ratio, we look at saturation, we look at respiratory rate, and uh, we are increasing this time uh, free from a helmet CPAP. Uh, and uh, in uh, four, five, six days, we can definitely win, uh, have this patient win from, uh, from helmet CPAP with an increase of high flow nasal cannula. Um, the, we, we, we measure uh, comfort, we measure uh, dyspnea, although these patients rarely uh, have a strong dyspnea, you know, this better than me. And then we prolong time uh, free from helmet CPAP with an uh, increasing timing of high flow nasal cannula. Usually the, the, time, the, the, uh, the uh, FiO2 is uh, the minimum uh, to get a saturation of 95, 96, no more actually in these patients. Uh, it's fine, 97. Uh, and um, and the, the flow usually is 50, 60 liters per minute, but this is comfort related, you know, uh, and humidity uh, could be around 37 Celsius degrees. Uh, but uh, all these are individualized by our respiratory physiotherapists on uh, patient comfort. And, uh, and then uh, after three, four days of high flow nasal cannula, then we wean to, uh, to nasal cannula, low flow nasal cannula. Uh, there's, there's no right or wrong. This is what we do. And, um... That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing. That's amazing. Uh, Marina, I'm going to start with you. Then the next one for the the same one for for invasive and what you're seeing changes in physiology. Are you guys doing anything different? And then whoever wants to go next. Uh, I guess we changed from the beginning. We start intubating the the patients too early, in my opinion. Uh, I guess mainly because we are afraid of the disease and we wanted to protect ourselves, all the health workers. So we intubated patients very early when they started to have some kind of discomfort, a little bit of hypoxia, and they were intubated. Then uh, at some point, I guess we shifted for another extreme in, uh, here. We started delaying the intubation. We said, oh, they don't feel, they don't have any complaints. They don't feel their spinia. And we went for, an, yeah, really the, the other extreme. And now I think we are in a good point. We saw that they are not that different from what we knew before and that we can use the same uh, bedside reassessment and to take the best time uh, for, for intubation. So I guess we uh, find the, found a good po point. And about invasive mechanical ventilation, that I think we always uh, hear, we always kept the same uh, protocol that we use for all ARDS patients. We didn't really uh, try anything new. We followed the protocol and Perhaps, uh, I guess we got more experience with prone position, but not that we did it already, uh, but we had so many patients that I guess that all the staff are really well-trained. They know already. They said, yeah, this patient, nurses, physiotherapists, everybody knows that oh, they, he's going to be prone again, or that's the next step. So yeah, that's, that's how it went for here. Tom or Sai, whoever wants to go next. 
Sure. So, I mean, uh, honestly, we think it's just ARDS, just do the standard stuff. Uh, but unfortunately, most people are not doing the standard stuff even before the pandemic. So it's, there's a lot of education going on in terms of low tidal volume, permissive hypercapnia, plateau pressure. The other side of it is a lot of people who don't do critical care are needing to do critical care. So in fact, Chest has some good infographics, which we'll be talking about one of the other webinars on you know, what are the things you need to look at. And that kind of education is going on. So my biggest learning has been to bring people up to speed with mini education sessions on proning. And uh, so a lot of remote sites, uh, we do tele-ICU. So we're actually educating remote sites on managing these patients and guiding their ventilator use that way. Uh, since I also do it for the US, I'm also seeing the variability in terms of ARDS management in the rural settings where uh, community physicians who didn't usually have such sick patients are needing to manage them. And it's kind of a universal phenomenon. And my biggest takeaway has been just the standard stuff works. Uh, you have to be patient. You will have complications. Uh, and because of the uh, hyperinflammatory coagulopathy issues, a lot of uh, unusual things have happened. I mean, people with MI and things like that, they're prone, and, you know, where do you do the EKG? Do it on the prone side or the supine side? And, you know, all kinds of those uh, questions have come up. Uh, but the, the support structures uh, with the physicians has been amazing. Uh, nurses have been amazing. We don't have a large number of respiratory therapists in India. So it's very, it's actually a rarity to have respiratory therapists. So doctors and nurses double up as those. And so one of the learnings from this pandemic is that we really need more respiratory therapists to help guide. Uh, now, so oximetry has become a household word. So patients communicate with us and tell us, hey, my SATs are this much when I did an exercise oximetry and should I go to the hospital now? So, so we are actually managing several patients at home and uh, treating with steroids, et cetera. So see my, I work at Apollo Hospitals. And so my hospital has about uh, four to 5,000 people around the country in home care. And it's not like they're sick people, like meaning they should be in a hospital. But because of the crunch in beds, many of them have concentrators at home and they're on steroids, they're proning at home. So all that stuff is going on. So who knows whether they already have ARDS or not until they get to the hospital. So, so ARDS management as the principles have been very useful and reminding people that those things work has been useful. Uh, also reminding people on measuring the parameters on the ventilator, you know, identifying peak pressures, that the peak pressure is not an alarm, you keep silencing, it means something. So, you know, teaching people, in fact, I had to have a slide in one of my talks, the monitor, the, the, the silence button is worn out and the rubber's gone. So you're pushing on it all the time. So I'll share it sometime. So, so we have, you know, stuff like that happening, but, but I think there's a lot of good that's come out. I mean, you know, it's a terrible situation, but, for healthcare, I think it's a good thing that people are recognizing how important healthcare is and uh, smokers are quitting and people are wearing masks and they're washing hands. And so it's a lot of good stuff coming out too. So. I, you know, I think in general, when we compare where we are now compared to where we came from, uh, when I think about before intubation, I agree with what Marina said. I think um, we're much more tolerant of patients being on we tend to use much more high flow nasal cannula than, um, than non-invasive ventilation in general. We don't have helmet um, uh, interfaces. So um, it's either orofacial or, or nothing. And, and we found it to be kind of uncomfortable for people to wear orofacial um, interfaces for long periods of time. So we tend to use more heated high flow and we're much more tolerant in its use. We're also more likely to do prone, uh, awake prone positioning than we were you know, early. Um, so I think that's kind of the big change before intubation. I think uh, once someone's intubated, uh, like the others said, um, you know, the focus is really typical ARDS management. Um, we haven't uh, really done anything different from that. And, and like Sai nicely pointed out, really the key is actually making sure we're, we're doing what we want to be doing. Um, I think after um, intubation or kind of in the recovery phase, I think the thing that we've started to see more and I don't know if this is a, just a reflection of the fact that we have the capacity now to see it, but um, you know we're seeing people with very prolonged recovery phases. You know, people on high flow for weeks or months afterward. That perhaps in the first surge we just didn't have the capacity to allow that to happen. But people who recover, you know, people who maybe in that first surge we would have just said, okay, they're not going to make it out of the hospital. 
now when we give them time, they're getting discharged, you know, they're on 90% heated high flow for a month, and then they're getting discharged on six liters of oxygen, you know, months down the line. But, and those are certainly exceptions, but like, those are cases that I never imagined um, in the first search. And those are cases, and I don't know, share, just sharing experience, those are cases that on regular flu years, that when we just had regular flu, that we would not see because they would either like tank pretty quickly and we could not get them to oxygenate and maybe they were not ECMO candidates. But but I agree with you. What we are seeing also is, is like this prolonged thing. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, six liters and walking and it's like, okay, going home, you know. So I, I think that's a little different also. But I also, what, what I've heard as a common theme is uh, we were all afraid because unknown is very, is very scary, but we got, we've gotten better and we are, we are doing um, better for our patients. And I agree with Sai. I think in 10 years from now, when we do a webinar, remember COVID, um, I think we're all going to conclude that we, that we got better because of it. And I just want to make sure that is okay if I if I challenge you a little bit with med treatments. Is that okay? Because we have a question from our audience. So what are you guys doing different, the same, um, this time around in this surge in terms of meds? And you can talk to us about anything, remdesivir, um, um tocilizumab or, or anything you're doing. We already talked a little bit about steroids. If you want to touch on steroids also, and, um, our, our, um, member, our chest members, um, did ask us about hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. So I will, I will bring it up. So feel free to comment on it or not. So, um, whoever wants to start first, let's go Marina. Let's go Marina. Um, okay, I guess, well, the first big difference that we have is really steroids. Uh, now we use in all our ICU patients. And I actually, I was submitting a study protocol about steroids because our main question now is uh, whether we have to, how long and if you can use it for more time or a little bit of a higher dose. So we had some patients in, in the hospital, well, a lot of patients that had restarted cold, uh, steroids after the 10 days, that's uh, the protocol of recovery. They use in recovery. And the idea now is doing a ret retrospective study with this data to see if we can uh, find anything that's uh, then to make a randomized clinical trial because, well, that's, that's the main question we have in our clinical practice. We don't use uh, hydroxychloroquine anymore, uh, no ivermectin. Uh, and I think that's perhaps still an unanswered question, but we need uh, a randomized trial. I think there is no room for uh, use it out of a trial. Um, yeah, and for toxolizumab, well, unfortunately, it's too expensive. I work in a public health, uh, public hospital, so we don't have access. Uh, I think it would be a nice tool for selected patients, but yeah, I have no experience with it. Just a follow-up question. Do you, are you guys measuring um, inflammatory markers in Brazil? Yes, we measure uh, protein C, uh, uh, yeah, that's the standard. We, yeah, for public health, that's what we have. Yes, okay. as you know, for uh, private care hospitals, they have anything you want, but for public health, we have protein C. Okay, thank you. I, I can go next. Um, I would say uh, we were using remdesivir and tocilizumab in the first surge and we're continuing to use it now. I think in the first surge, at least in the beginning, we were our own local practice kind of reluctant to use steroids. But then once the data from the recovery study came out now, um, dexamethasone is a standard of care for our critically ill population. Um, in terms of other, uh, and I'd say those are really the main drugs that we're using. I think anticoagulation use has kind of fluctuated as well. Um, there was a lot of variation in the beginning. 
I think now in general, most people are just using standard um, uh, prophylaxis dose of anticoagulation. Um, although there's been a lot of kind of debate and variation in even locally in terms of what we've been doing. Uh, in terms of the other agents like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, uh, we have not been uh, using those agents. And, and I agree, like I think um, uh, it, outside of a trial, um, I just don't see the data to support their use. Stefano. So we um, so now we are uh, almost in line with the um, the living guidelines published by the European Respiratory Society uh, a few weeks ago. So the um, for for uh, for our uh, patients on acute respiratory failure, uh, all of them are on steroids. Uh, all of them are on anticoagulant therapy. Uh, and uh, uh, and then uh, we discuss about the use of remdesivir. Although my my own population is a little bit too far from uh, remdesivir use, so um, let me let me spend a couple of words about steroids. Uh, now uh, now we are running a randomized control trial. Uh, this is a multi-center trial in, uh, in Italy looking at desametazone 6 milligrams uh, versus methylprednisolone 80 milligrams because still uh, the right molecule, uh, uh, the right dosage, the right duration of therapy are still unknown. We are not sure that the, uh, the uh, recovery desametazone 6 milligrams uh, works in all our patients. We have a feeling that we should individualize that on CRP or ferritin or whatever, but uh, we don't have data so far. Uh, and so six milligrams of desametazone is standard of care because of the trial, but uh, it doesn't work uh, for all patients in the, uh, the same. The anticoagulation therapy suggested by the, recommended by the US guidelines is important, although, the guidelines uh, uh, cannot tell us the, the exact dosage. So what we are doing is what we were doing uh, during the first wave. Uh, so we are individualizing the anticoagulation therapy according to gas exchange and according to inflammation uh, and the dimer. So these are the three tools we are using and we are moving from, uh, uh, from, um, from different dosage uh, of uh, uh, of uh, prophylaxis up to full uh, anticoagulation. Uh, but now we are seeing um, a little bit more bleeding uh, in, the, in the second and third wave uh, uh, in comparison to the first wave, maybe because people are more prone to, uh, to start clexing or whatever the, in the house and, uh, and uh, higher dosage in the ICU, for example. Um, uh, antibiotics only if we have strong suspicion of bacterial co-infection. Uh, otherwise, uh, we are not starting empiric antibiotic therapy in a pure uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, interstitial pneumonia. And, uh, and uh, if we have uh, randomized control trials, uh, these are our first choice for our patients. Uh, so we tend to enroll people in, in our trials. Uh, and um, tocilizumab uh, should be given uh, if uh, steroids are not working or on top of steroids treatment in very severe patients. So uh, we tend to get tocilizumab according to ERS guidelines uh, in people who are already uh, candidate uh, or receiving steroids. Uh, in the first wave, uh, we were using uh, um, anakinra a lot uh, in, a, in, a, in a nice way, discussing each case with uh, our immunologists, rheumatologists. And we had the feeling that uh, we also published some observational data, uh, but uh, there are some patients that uh, might, might deserve a more intense and individualized treatment with tocilizumab or, uh, or, uh, or uh, anakinra or whatever. Still a lot of open questions. 
uh, anticoagulation uh, dosage, uh, biomarkers to uh, individualize steroids and, uh, and anticoagulation. Uh, we need this data. We need this data definitely. If I go next, I mean, uh, we've kind of moved away from a lot of stuff we were doing, but ivermectin is widely used. And I don't think we're going to ever do a trial anymore because I think almost everybody's taking it. So what may be good is to look at the outcomes. And if you can actually do a population level trial, uh, that would make a lot of sense, I think, because uh, several hundred thousand people have easily taken it. Uh, Many people are taking doxycycline, and I even forgot where that knowledge arose from, where the idea came from, but people are taking doxycycline. And it's almost become like a pre-printed prescription for some people because there's so many, you just click a button and send off a prescription, and they're like 10 drugs. Uh, so the big question is that a lot of, uh, I know the WHO came out yesterday or a couple of days back saying, don't use ivermectin outside the trial. Uh, the reality is it's being very widely used. And I'm just going to say there's going to be a parasite-free India very soon, just because of you know, the number of ivermectin usages. But uh, it'll be good to really uh, try to understand uh, you know, what came out of it, because it's a good population-level experiment. So some smart person out there should like analyze the data. The other thing is, uh, towards the other, so we have a, a hospital-wide, uh, there are national groups, so like you know, a lot of doctors in this field. So we have come up with the 40th edition this week of our guidelines. So we're changing it almost like every two weeks. So this 40th edition now has added uh, bidesonide in the first for early stage uh, usage. Uh, so we're actually using that. But the problem is the inhalers are out. So people are, you know, don't know what to use. So some of them are using uh, motorol or uh, fluticasone with some other combination, salmeterol. So we're going to end up seeing a lot of side effects from that because people don't realize it. Uh, the other end of the spectrum uh, for the very sick ones, uh, Tosi ran out of, you know, we didn't have it. So people have started using etolizumab and people are, have tried it. And people have also tried Bevacizu, you know, the, the reach VEGFT drug. Some of them are actually using that. And uh, we have seen several patients with baricitinib after the NEJM trial. Uh, many non-intubated patients are on baricitinib. Uh, and remdesivir. So that, that's happening pretty widespread. Again, the drugs run out. So people are now switching to the next version of, I think it's tofatinib or something, that's what it's an anti-psoriasis drug. So people are actually using all those sets. You know, and everyone claims it works or doesn't work. So it's not in a trial fashion, but, but what I've seen work is steroids and oxygen uh, for sure. And mold, I think that's giving you the most bang for the buck. And then uh, remdesivir and TOSI. Remdesivir, we're using it much, much less than what we did earlier. Uh, and we're definitely trying our best to use it in the early part and not the later part. Uh, many patients are also using uh, favipiravir still. And uh, the side effects to watch that the liver function, uric acid. Again, I don't know what the outcome, but if you, if you know, there's over 130,000 articles out on PubMed on COVID you'll find an article which suits what you want to do. So unfortunately, that's the reality of it right now. And high quality research, it's hard to do. And I think except for the recovery trial, nothing else has been like really high quality, but you can say, you know what, that's what works. And it's so hard and COVID is such an emotional thing now, people are willing to do anything. Uh, it's sad, but uh, evidence-based medicine is hard to prescribe to people when you have six people all infected at home without oxygen. And they're getting advice saying, try this or that. And they're willing to try this or that because it doesn't cost much and uh, or they have access to it. So the reality is that it'd be very important for us to this. The science is not going to be to do another big trial. It's going to be to understand what happened because people did these things. Because you're actually going to get a lot of good knowledge just by analyzing what happened to people when they did these things. So I think that's the direction to go because it's going to be very difficult to go test a new drug out at this point. So every day we're getting new drugs. So yesterday, uh, the Indian government uh, authorized a drug called 2DG, uh, which is a form of glucose. And I still haven't figured out exactly how it works, but uh, it's going to be available very soon. So, so there's a lot of new things out there. And part of it is because people want something to fix it. And, and they're willing to take it if it's not too high risk. But evidence-based at tertiary centers, they're only doing oxygen, steroids, 
remdesivir, tocilizumab, baricitinib, and then everything else, depending on what happens. Uh, there have people who have tried stem cells too, by the way. So there are many people who are, there's a study out of Miami that came out, which uh, spread on WhatsApp like wildfire and people started using stem cells. So, so I think uh, we just have to analyze what happened and uh, keep teaching people the basics of, you know, do no harm first uh, and make sure that your hands are clean, wash your hands and prevent those MDR infections which are preventable. And those will save lives more than pretty much anything else because most people get well without doing anything. So. I think um, one of the things that's been um, frustrating for me more recently is like um, some, some populations, some people have vaccine hesitancy, um, but then uh, when, you know, like for instance, I can think of a patient that I, an outpatient that I take care of who absolutely refused to get the COVID vaccination. But then once uh, she did get COVID, she wanted to be first in line for all these untreated, untested hydroxychloroquine, all these things. So it's, it's just frustrating when, um, uh, when we know the vaccine works and can not only prevent COVID, but can also prevent severe disease and prevent death. Um, but some people are reluctant to get the vaccine, but they're not reluctant to try all these things that are untested. We're seeing, we're seeing a lot of that too, especially young, younger patients, to be honest with you. Um, and, and it is, to me, to me, I, puzzles me I can't like I can't understand I don't even know what questions to ask to try to understand why is that so I, I wanted to go back to something you said if you could just share with us a little bit more so these prescriptions that you mentioned with like 15 drugs are they being given like for 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 mild COVID before they come to the hospital or are the, like or are they being given like as soon as people need the hospital uh, no, it's all uh, almost all telemedicine based uh, and some in person because the volume is so much that, uh, and I guess patients want these things. So they're giving them standardized, most of them vitamins and then uh, maybe ivermectin and antibiotic, uh, favipiravir, depending on the situation. Unfortunately, some are actually even giving steroids early and we're kind of reaping the sad part of that now with the mucor and the infections. And so they're doing our best to educate uh, people who are, you know, just doing this to kind of not do that. But the vast majority have now, I think the last three weeks have realized that the simpler the regimen, the better, because they're getting a lot of feedback from patients that know these aren't working. What do we do? Uh, and the oxygen uh, kind of, crunch that happened has also put people to try other things. I mean, people are, uh, I saw this video about using a fan to get oxygen and it spreads on what, you know, like wildfire. So one of the things to really do is to kind of get rid of the misinformation and remind people that, I mean, there is science in all this. There are scientific things. And as you know, pulmonary physicians and critical care physicians, part of our role is going to be outside the ICU to educate people what you need to do to stay out of the ICU. And that's, I would call the public health aspect of critical care. And I think it's very important we do that because you know you, you see the sickest patients and they consume so much of resources. And if there's a way to prevent it, I think we should do that. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I do that anytime I see people that steroids started early, do our best to stop it. And uh, you know, some people don't tell you, so, you know, like family members so know that, hey, you know what, he's, he's like not gonna let us take these drugs. So I saw somebody's WBC count, I said, what is 14,000 and he only day two of the illness? What did you take? You know, they confessed. We took steroids. So, so you know, so th those kinds of things happen. So, I think it's important to uh, remind people that uh, the simple things still work. Most people do well, and when you don't do well, there is enough expertise available to kind of talk about it. And you're not going this alone. You can actually get advice from you know people like Alice and Stefano and Tom and Marina and say, hey, what did you see? So, I was actually curious, Marina. Well, how is the Brazil surge? Because you know, I, I honestly, I looked at the headlines, but I didn't go into it because I was like, I don't want to read the bad stuff. But now I'm like, you know what? These guys went through it. What can we learn from them? So what? how did you guys do your days? I mean, I'm sure you had like very long days and managing so many patients. Any tips you can give people in the middle of the surge? Now? Yeah, well, um, it was a little bit disappointing, actually, uh, because we did... 
Well, I could say quite well when we have the first search last year. Uh, we had time because we have seen what happened to Italy. So um, the hospital I work was lucky because they had just finished a building that were going to be our new ICU. And then instead of just moving the ICU, we kept uh, the both ICU. So we have uh, the old one for uh, COVID-free uh, patients and the new building for COVID patients. So he got a hundred beds that was ready uh, when the pandemic came. Uh, so I guess we got, we thought like, oh, we did okay last year. This year it will be, will be okay. And that's, that was not really okay. It was really, really sad. And we had to, what really changed for me is that I went to the emergency room. We did rounds with uh, physicians in the emergency rooms because we had like 30 patients in mechanical ventilated in the emergency room and we didn't have place for them uh, in the ICU. So they really didn't have experience. We had to train uh, uh, nurses and physicians for prone position in the emergency ICU, in the emergency uh, room. That was really, really difficult. They have uh, a very different way of thinking from intensivists, I guess, because they, they treat the immediate problem. They don't uh, think ahead what's going to happen from two, three days a week from them. So the patient had a new fever. They said, oh, perhaps I should uh, start an antibiotics. So we have to change a little bit the way they, they work. So that's, that was the most challenge for me. It's, uh, it was working. Uh, with people that was not used to work in the, in the ICU. Because as I said, I work in a university hospital, so I'm a little bit lucky. It's different from uh, other hospitals in Brazil that they already have non-intensivists working in the ICU. I had, uh, uh, we had only intensivists in our ICU, and, but then we had ICU outside of the ICU. That's what's really different. And also we have, uh, we had, uh, anesthesiologists come to the ICU. They had a, a whole unit that was uh, managed by them. And we, and here uh, in Brazil, we have a different, uh, it's not the same path. Right? You don't do uh, anesthesiologist as a part of being an intensivist. You can do it, but most of us didn't do it. So they, they really also didn't have the, uh, the way they thought it was very, very different. But they enjoyed, they learned, and we learned. We had a, a very good uh, exchange of knowledge. Uh, but I guess the, the worst part was for the first time, we didn't have enough ICU beds. We didn't have, uh, in some parts of Brazil, not here uh, in the south, but in the north of Brazil, we didn't have enough oxygen. It was really sad uh, because really people died because hostel went out of oxygen. Uh, we also, they didn't have enough ventilator here. Our problem was mainly, uh, we couldn't get patient transferred to the ICU. So they had to have their care in, not in the optimal uh, place. And just to, just to add, Marina, please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but Sai, in our hometown, Marina and I are from the same hometown. In our hometown, three of the hospitals actually had to close their ED. We have five big hospitals, but three of them had to close the ED to then house ICU patients to like to become an ICU. So things like MIs and strokes that would get that would get TPA easily or go to the cath lab easily, they were getting they were not getting the care that was standard until um, this big surge in COVID hit. I, I would say that almost uh, every hospital at some point uh, closed their doors, their emergency doors. Uh, not at the same time, but uh, all at some point they, they said we, we can't receive any more patients. And one is especially, it's the one that uh, Alice did her in internal medicine residence here. 
because it's known for not close the doors. They always find room for one more patient. So that really scared the population when they saw that that hospital closed its door and said, yeah, we, we don't have place for it. no patient now. Then, then people got scared. I guess that was scary. And when we had a private hospital saying that they couldn't start their deaths, their deaths anymore, that they needed uh, a truck for doing that. Uh, that was something that really touched the, the, uh, the population here in Porto Alegre because I guess this also helped to uh, reduce the case because for the first time we saw people that were, they were always, they started doing the prevention measures like social distance, mask wearing, that's really scared everybody. And I think also that's important to point out that I believe at least in terms more of a cultural thing, things that Indians, Italians, and Brazilians have in common is that we do not understand being apart. Um, I think I think that that's something like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I see Sai was laughing and I think that that's an agreement. And Stefano, I'm not, I'm not sure, but like, but for my family in Brazil, they, they couldn't understand, like, what do you mean we can't see each other? I'm like, yeah, you cannot see each other. Like, that's, that's what it is. So I think that, that that's part of what it was hard also. And I think that's part of why all these countries were hit really hard at the same time. Because it was like in Brazil, for example, things got really worse after Carnival because people could not understand that, like, we're still in a pandemic. You cannot go to Carnival. Um, so... It's, it's hard. It's, I, I feel like there are things we have in common in the three countries um, that we have represented here today um, that in the U.S. I feel like it's easier to understand. And I feel like that part was a little easier to have people understand, like you, you need to not see everybody, I think was a little easier. But unfortunately, we are running out of time. This conversation has been amazing. I wish we had three hours to keep talking to each other. So as a parting gift for our um, chest members, I would like to that each of you to give a pearl about is this is this new COVID or is the same old we just got better or the disease got a little stronger than what we could predict. And what is something if you can share one pearl of what you learn during this year and a half that we have been dealing with this infection, um, I would really appreciate if you could do that for our CHESS members. And on behalf of CHESS, I really want to thank you all for joining me this morning, evening, afternoon, whatever you're calling from. And thank you so much for all you do. Thank you for taking care of our patients. And thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with our CHESS members. So I'm just going to call Marina first because she's first in my, in my screen and then please go after her. Well, uh, I think it's the same disease. I, get, I really believe we're getting better and we are improving our knowledge. Uh, so, and what's, what's the second thing? A pearl, like something that you learned that you want our chess members to learn from you. One pearl. Yeah, I think prevention works. Everything we know about prevention works. Vaccines, mask wearing, and social distance works. So that's my pearl. I can go next. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I, this this feels like the same COVID. You know, I don't think this is anything new. I think um, we're better at treating it. I think we're better at organizing intensive care around it um, and uh, better at preventing it or understanding how to prevent it, whether we actually try to or not. Um, in terms of a pearl, you know, I think COVID is critical care, right? It is critical care one-on-one. -on -one. It's what we do every day. But um, at a much larger scale. Um, and so I think it highlights the, um, the moral distress and the impact on clinicians, right? Like this is what we do every day times like a million. So it takes a toll on, on physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, everyone. And so I think it really um, highlights the need to um, create structures that prevent burnout and ensure that we can maintain this workforce going forward. So I, I, I go, I go, 
So I think that uh, I, I, sh I, I agree with Thomas, um, is the same disease. The point is that it's evolving a little bit different uh, now uh, because of several factors, but um, uh, in terms of pearls, I think that I got two of them. First one is still uh, we need to improve our knowledge on pathophysiology of this disease because it's not clear enough to us. Uh, so we need more data uh, from, from, from animal models, from pathophysiological point of view, uh, to really understand this. And the second pearl is enroll your patient in randomized controlled trials because we need very good data. And uh, these are the only way uh, we can survive from this epidemic. Uh, and uh, this is the, the, the two things I would like to share with you. Right, so I think uh, this is the same disease. We're just seeing it in just larger volumes and the complications are many. So the challenges are more and we're just needing to think on our feet. Uh, it's a huge opportunity for us to educate our colleagues who are not in critical care on how to manage critical care very effectively. And in terms of pearls, I mean, pearls are under the ocean and waves are on top of the ocean. So I don't want waves of pearls at this point. So I'm just going to say uh, I, I would just recommend stick to wearing a mask, getting vaccinated, and completely agree with Stefano about the research needs. And it'll be very important for people to think about the global experiments happening right now and see what can be derived from it. And I think also to remember that, you know, we're all going through this. I'm sure all of your family has gone through this. And we've had our own challenges, you know, heading home, heading to work. I mean, it's, you know, like, you're on a space suit and airlock spacesuit kind of a situation. So it's probably important for us to also remember to kind of look at each other as human beings and not forget that kindness and compassion still have a huge role to play because it ultimately comfort always, right? That's our goal. So, so I think uh, a lot, even though it's all unknown, uh, we need to reassure our patients that we are still there for them, whatever the outcome. I love that. Let's all give ourselves some grace and let's hope we can bring those hugs back really soon because I'm missing them. Thank you again so much for being with us today. Really appreciate you and thank you all so much for what you're doing for all our patients.